everybody. We're live for this week's MHTV and this week we're talking about moral injury. It's a really interesting topical subject at the moment. I'm going to hand you over to my co-host first, Nikki, and then I'll go around the panel and we'll do some introductions. Over to you, Nikki. Hello, everyone. Really good to see you back here tonight. Um, as I say, we're looking at moral injury and we'd really love to hear your opinions and any questions you've got. You can always ask our panel anything you like. Um, you can do that on Twitter um, following the hashtag MHTV or in the um, comments in the Facebook live stream. So excuse me if I'm looking down a little bit, but um, I'm really excited for tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Okay, over to Natalie. Do you want to just introduce yourself and say a few words about your interest in tonight's conversation? Yes, thanks very much uh, for inviting us. Um, I'm here together with Anna. Um, my name is Natalie Kemp. I'm a clinical psychologist by trade and uh, the founder and chair of Integrate Mental Health. Um, Integrate Mental Health is an organisation that values, supports and destigmatizes lived experience of mental health difficulties in mental health professionals. Uh, so that's something that Anna and I work together on. Um, yeah. Today, um, we're going to be talking about moral injury, and I think we're going to be uh, talking about some very classic ideas of around about moral injury and where it came from, but also extending the idea a little bit to get underneath uh, these things about what our values are and when they can feel contravened. Yeah, brilliant. Looking forward to it. And um, Anna, do you, have you got anything you'd like to add to what Natalie's just said? Um, yeah, I'm Dr. Anna Sicilia. I'm also a clinical psychologist and I'm director of Integrate Mental Health. So I work with Natalie around what she's just said in terms of lived experience of mental health in uh, mental health professionals. Um, so yeah, nothing to add, just that I'm really excited to be here and thank you very much for inviting us. Welcome and thanks for joining us. And um, I'm going to go over to Kaj now. Do you want to um, introduce yourself and perhaps maybe if we could start by giving a bit of a definition about moral injury as well? Yeah, of course. Thanks very much, Vanessa. So I'm Kaj Roof. I'm a clinical psychologist as well. Um, I work in adult mental health um, for the NHS and I'm also um, the incoming chair of the Applied Psychologist um, Organising Professional Committee which is an arm in Unite the Union so I'm hoping I'll bring a bit of a kind of reflection of, of kind of issues that have come up as trade union issues during Covid in particular. Um, in terms of um, moral injury, um, as I understand it, and I wouldn't profess to be an expert, actually, um, it was it was kind of brought to my attention in a healthcare setting quite recently, actually, at the beginning of the, the pandemic. And as I understand it, um, moral injury is, comprises kind of an, an injury to a person's sense of morality, the kind of sort of sense of, of kind of internal right or wrong, and it links with, with values. It actually originally came out of military, um, the military settings. And I think, as I understand it, people, um, veterans returning who, who tended to do less well um, in terms of their mental health, they found that actually there'd been kind of a deep injury. I mean, you can't get much deeper than somebody's moral um, you know the, their internal morals. They they'd found that people were were suffering with kind of that deep level of injury tended to be very very distressed, and that was kind of linked with either being an actor, or perpetrating or an agent of kind of doing things that were against somebody's personal moral system, um, or witnessing things um, that um, called their kind of moral position into question. And the, one of the things that's very striking about it is that there's a relationship with power. So it tends to be a kind of a sense of the system is saying something and actually people within that system then do something that's against their moral code. Um, and that can lead to a sort of a sense of betrayal, um, guilt, shame, anger, disgust. Um, and so there's a kind of a sense that it's a kind of a relational thing that happens within a particular system. And the reason it sort of came to my attention at the beginning of lockdown was there was a really interesting article um, circulated to me by one of my colleagues in the British Medical Journal um, by Greenberg and co-authors. And they were really trying to kind of identify that actually 
early help was very important um, for health professionals working during the pandemic because people might find themselves kind of potentially overwhelmed or in situations where they might have to do kind of less than what they felt was their best in in kind of a resource uh, constrained setting with with a lot of demands um, on the services so they were really saying you know we need to have conversations about this sooner rather than later um, to ensure that staff are protected and not only during you know, before during and after um, the pandemic is over so that that was very interesting to me and we talked about it on the on the unite committee that i'm part of and and kind of had a discussion well several discussions about those kinds of dilemmas in terms of supporting our members in their workplaces thank you it's really interesting so much there isn't there i mean it's quite a, it's a relatively new term to me as well but it really does resonate for me um, as a mental health nurse thinking about um you know some of the system issues in particular and um i know only yesterday i did um a twitter chat with we mental health nurses with we cops so with the police community and certainly although we didn't talk directly about moral injury um, I would say that it was a theme throughout as well and lots of parallels, um, particularly, I think, about complex trauma as well, I think, mm. between, you know, being exposed to one traumatic event after after another in the course of duty. Um, I think it's, you know, really important that we're, we're talking about this. And um, and I guess, you know, throwing it open to the panel, really, to um, to contribute any more thoughts about that from from your perspectives and experiences what we came across was this idea of um sort of death by a thousand cuts sometimes and um it relates to what you were just saying vanessa in terms of actually although people might be able to overcome or deal with one of those things when it keeps repeating then that, that's when you might see the moral injury or you know mm -hmm. the injury to your sort of deep values when it keeps happening over and over and over again which is what we might see in the military, but also in health settings at the moment, especially mm -hmm. with the coronavirus outbreak and some of the, you know, I keep, I'm, I'm originally Italian and I keep thinking back to some of what was happening in Italy in the early stages and how, um, you know, healthcare workers have had to make really, really, really difficult decisions yeah. in terms of um, life and death, really, situations in hospitals and, and I know, um, you know, there was a lot mentioned about power um, and, you know, how I guess that imbalance of power sometimes for people having to make those decisions or having that lack of, of choice and power in a situation, especially at the moment where everything is bigger than one person having to make a decision. And that can really be uh, traumatizing, as we say, for people. And it can it can leave people feeling in a in a whole in a, you know all sorts of ways in terms of some of the emotions that might arise, like guilt, shame, and and everything that's been spoken about. What is interesting about moral injury is also this idea of um, it being quite an understandable human reaction mm. in extraordinary circumstances. So it's some of what we might see at the moment with a situation that no one expected uh, we you know a lot of people weren't prepared for what has happened and the decisions that people have had to make have been in in a way unexpected um, and something that is outside of that normal decision making that might still be difficult and you know taps into the ethical and moral um you know understanding of a person but it's maybe more predictable you know it's something that doctors might sort of train into Mm. Um, but now it feels it feels very different and very unexpected, I think, which is also relevant to to mention. Yeah, mm. I mean, we've been work, you know, all working in quite extreme, um, you know, circumstances recently, haven't we, with COVID? Um, and certainly, um, you know, healthcare professionals in particular and frontline staff generally. But do you think there's anything that the system could do to protect people and help reduce the likelihood of a a moral injury. I think it's really important that systems are, are, are kind of open, that leadership is really open, that this is possibly going to come up, these dilemmas, you know, to be really clear um, and acknowledge it. 
Um, because I think possibly the worst thing to do is is just to pretend as if you know people aren't going to be put into very difficult situations. Because what what that then in turn does is it just invalidates people's personal experience of that conflict that they're experiencing in their internal internal world when they're at work, having to make desperate decisions uh, that they wouldn't ever want to be put in the position to do with you know limited resources and. And, and funny, it's so hard to prepare for something where it's it's really unknown um, what's going to happen. We'll remember back to that time, you know, uh, mm. right at the beginning when it was when it really felt that way. So I, I think just really clear messages, frank discussions, and providing spaces where those are, you have to be a bit careful about debriefing, but but spaces where it can be talked about, you know, mm. whether it's kind of with individuals and validating. Uh, conversations with individuals or with groups in some way to to kind of to say you know this is the situation yeah and um and if there's any healthcare managers watching and leaders um how might um moral injury um manifest in somebody you know what kind of things would you look out for do you think there are ways it can manifest in the individual, which which are kind of uh, for those people who are kind of used to thinking about your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviours. It can sound a bit like kind of looking at a cognitive behavioural therapy kind of uh, formulation. But the kinds of thoughts are going to be, you know, um, well, what they might be. What might happen first is this sense of you know we did our best with staff resources, but it wasn't enough. You know, it wasn't enough, and that might then proceed to. Uh, really difficult thoughts about the self, like I'm a terrible person, or mm. um, the system doesn't care, although we'll say more about that later. But, um, you know, it, 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 that's really hard, or the, feel, the feelings that Anna mentioned before and Kaj mentioned as well about shame and disgust. Uh, and when those are turned inwards, when those are internalised, as if it is the, the problem of the person, that that is the case, and then, then that's very troublesome. It's not a mental health problem. But it's incredibly distressing. Yeah, in, I remember a long time ago, um, I used to um, be involved in supporting staff um, after critical incidents um, in mental health. And the thing that really stands out in my mind, and it's a long time ago now, is um, people said over and over again how they felt really out of control, um, and that was, you know, a massive, a massive um, thing. And I think, I think that. For me, that was the the single factor that came up over and over again. And thinking about uh, you know the system and managers mm -hmm. and um, you know putting people in difficult circumstances around you know staffing and um, you know lack of resources in, in mental health. So I think there's you know I certainly wasn't aware of you know moral injury at the time. I was aware of trauma and the impact of trauma. But I think moral injury is a really great term for for capturing um, some of the, you know, some of the circumstances that, uh, you know, mental health staff uh, find themselves under, not just in COVID, but pre-COVID as well. Um, so, yeah, just a reflection from me. Nikki, um, any thoughts from you? There's been um, quite a few coming through now. Right. <laughs> it was quite, and now all of a sudden everyone's talking, which is lovely. Oh, lovely. Um, one from a student, which is interesting is um, talking about the fact that they've had um, lots and lots of, not of of lessons and support around um, resilience. And now they're saying, how does that fit in? You know, this idea that you're supposed to be resilient, but then obviously you're not necessarily supposed to be resilient. So that's one. If you ever have any comments on that, I'll come back to you with the other. Yeah. Uh, I thought resilience might be mentioned. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, I'll throw that open to whoever wants to have a go at um, commenting on that, really. I find the concept of resilience quite uncomfortable, I have to say, how it's uh, mm -hmm. sometimes used, especially in, I guess, in certain professional groups or, um, you know, in healthcare professionals sometimes, and how, I guess, sometimes it can um, take away from um, responsibility of the system. So, you know, resilience can almost imply that we as individuals should do something, you know, should be a certain way, should be able to cope with situations that really are not OK. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes away from actually, you know, what is it that the system should do so that people shouldn't have to cope with those situations? Um, so it can really localize something in the individual in a way that can be really unhelpful and actually 
can increase some of those feelings of guilt and shame and potentially make people feel like they need to withdraw. They can't open up about it because they're the only one feeling that way when there's this resilience narrative that is being perpetuated in, in certain systems and settings. So yeah, that, that would be my, you know, my opinion. And, and it's been interesting actually in this period to notice maybe a bit of a shift or a bit of an acknowledgement that it is okay to feel whatever you're feeling right now because the situation is so global and it's been so uh, blatant, I think, for everybody that it, it's been a bit more of a narrative of, well, if we're struggling, it is okay. You know, with in my team, there's been check-in spaces that have been put in place where we can just sit there and, and reflect on how we are and say that we're struggling in a way that wasn't possible before. Um, so interesting how a global issue can really highlight that actually, you know, we can struggle when the situation is not ideal for us and it's very traumatic. But why is that not present in other situations where, you know, there are still very limited resources. We are still coping with a lot of trauma on a daily basis. You know, we're still seeing as healthcare professionals a lot of things that are outside of the norm, you know, what, what a human being should normally cope with. Um, so that's why I find that resilience word quite a quite an unhelpful one at, at times, I think, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you. I think it's quite a politicised term as well, isn't it, resilience? And as you say, focus is very much on the responsibility being with the individual rather than the system mm. and the lack of resources. And um, Natalie, I know... Um, you know, we've had a brief conversation around, um, you know, mental health stigma. And from listening to Anna, I was thinking about stigma in terms of people not feeling able to talk about their feelings because of this sense that they have to be resilient. So I wondered if you might want to say a few words and then I'll come over to Kaj as well. Yeah, when it comes back to, um, if we kind of scan that back over to moral injury, injury in the sense of contravening something, um, where, where what Anna and I work on is um, where mental health professionals struggle with mental health difficulties and they're working in a mental health system. Now, the mental health system purports to understand mental health and it certainly uh, aims to be uh, have values of compassion, of helping people who come to it. Um, but of course, many of us who use those services are also located within the healthcare professional. We're all human as it is. Um, however, there seems to be a problem, which is that uh, when you break down on the inside, there seems to be some kind of contravention or transgression of some kind of cultural norm that needs to be questioned, um, which says that it's wrong, it's shameful, you've done some kind of terrible thing, that breaking down is not allowed. It's the context that's important if we, we kind of open up the idea of moral injury um, and getting back to this values base. It's the, it's the context of being a mental health professional and breaking down within a mental health system. So it, it's the sense that there's, there's insight that they know different. And unfortunately, a lot of people um, are suffering from an extra layer of stigma um, on top of their, whatever it is, their personal pain that they're, they're going through, which may or may not be related to work. Um, and, and, and so it, it's an extra weight. And in cases where people have had uh, that that kind of stigma validated. It's really lifted some of the weight. It's been a real turn. It's been really important. It certainly was for me, um, and I know for for other people too. So so there's a sense of here thinking about what is going on for the individual um, and what is going on in the systems around us and what kind of difficult narratives are perpetuated. Because um, at the end of the day, it's, it's a relational issue. It's something where you need to think about all of those contexts together. And the interventions need to be fully systemic. It's not for the individual to internalise. Um, you know, in the case of these situations you're talking in classic moral injury or in terms of mental health stigma, it's not, it's not for the, um, the individual to in, internalise uh, this kind of stigma or this kind of injury. Um, without, you know, any kind of recourse to having it validated by being something that's in context. Mm. I don't know if that's clear. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah no, I mean, it's, um, it's a massive subtopic, isn't it? But it's really important that we talk about it. And I think we're at the beginning, aren't we, of those conversations, really, certainly my experience working in mental health. Mm. Well, 
Um, Kaj, I know, um, do you want to come in at this point? Yeah, I, I just, it's such an interesting conversation. And I think it has been such an interesting time that, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on kind of well-being. Um, well, there has been a lot of emphasis on well-being, but there's been a kind of a, a kind of a, a period of time where there've been such deep contrasts. So there's been kind of lots of concerns about, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, about things like physical working conditions and PPE but also conversations about how can we introduce kind of well-being and um, employee assistance and staff um, support hubs. So it's been, a, I think it's been a really mixed picture. And in terms of resilience, I mean, I would echo what Anna said about, and Natalie said about kind of that individualising um, down to the person and it kind of draws attention away from the kind of systems that we work in and I think there is something there are dilemmas there aren't there you know the the work that we do in mental health or any any part of health and social care is emotional labor it's high in emotional labor a lot of us come into those professions for very vocational values-based reasons um, and sometimes we find ourselves working in systems that have fantastic um, values and ethics behind them. The NHS constitution is an amazing constitution, what it says. But sometimes there's a reality gap with, you know, with kind of um, years of chronic underfunding and the kind of the kind of increase in demand that there's been for mental health services places clinicians under a huge amount of pressure. Um, so I think there is something about the, those dilemmas and what what that sets up in the system in terms of like how do we how do we respond to demand so much demand and build the kind of trust with our clients that is part of the work and take that time to care, um, which is part of the work um, when all the time. This, this kind of high levels of demand. So I think there was stuff going on in the health system pre-COVID. I think I think COVID kind of um, has has brought some interesting discussions forward about well-being that I hope will continue. Mm. But you know, we work in systems that you know a lot of people have that kind of sense of occupational self-reliance as well. Mm. So unless you create a very emotionally intelligent system it's going to be hard for people to reach out and say that they're not doing that well um, and for it not to feel like you stand out in some way in doing that. It shouldn't feel like you stand out because, as we said, the, the work is emotional labour. Um, and I think that kind of some of the narratives that have been around in, in well-intentioned narratives that have been around during the pandemic actually also place people in dilemmas so this kind of sense of healthcare workers and social care workers being superheroes mm -hmm. a lot of militarized language mm -hmm. then you know what what kind of does that conjure up in terms of resilience in people's minds and like saying actually I don't you know I don't feel that well or I am really tired mm -hmm. but if you're a superhero how can you possibly be tired um so I think there are there are some interesting you know psychologists are interested in framing and how what kind of um what do, that sets up and I think there are some kind of dilemmas that are kind of inherently built into the system that are that were there before COVID uh, hopefully what's happening might give an opportunity for for there to be a more honest and uh humanized discussion about the work because all of this stuff depends on trust absolutely on trust and trust in our seniors our managers in our organizations that we work in that that they've got our back mm. yeah i love Kaj. i love the fact that you brought in about humanizing the system and i saw anna smile when you said that as well because i think this is what this comes down to we're talking about values mm. we're talking about people we're talking about humans yes. and sometimes i really really wonder in some ways you know, and this is not broad brush, but in some ways, whether um, massive organisations, you know, forget the, the humanity of their workforce. And it's, it seems it seems a kind of madness, actually, to talk about this kind of within the health system. Uh, but it's true. And, 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 and the extent to which, you know, 
health systems can value lived experience of mental health difficulties and is the extent to which they destigmatize it, is the extent to which we get much better collaboration with those with lived experience who aren't mental health professionals at the centre of our systems. We get patient leaders, Dave Gilbert, uh, an amazing influence on me. Um, what seems to happen is that this uh, experiencing of, of, of you know, something is so human that any any one of us giving, given challenges in life can, can struggle with our mental health. We know this. Mm. We know this. So what's the problem? <laughs> mm. What's the problem? It, it shouldn't be a problem. It's an, it should just be something that happens. It's awful. Um, nobody would wish the pain on anyone, but it shouldn't be a stumbling block to have to talk about it. It should be that we're met by compassionate cultures and we should expect mental mm. health services to be and health services to be compassionate cultures intrinsically but mm. unfortunately the, the difficulty is that you know talking about the pre-covid stuff this stuff was already a problem then so yeah. yes there's good you know i'm sure anna will say more about it but there's, there's there's great stuff coming out now about people being able to say say if they're struggling and, and having much more open conversations about that because something about a pandemic makes it okay to say <laughs> <laughs> something about a pandemic makes it okay to say but, but 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 what about you know after this is gone because you know we've moved on to whatever we're moving on to who knows but you know what are we going to come back to and, and and I really hope we don't come back to some of these old uh stigmatized ideas about us and them you know people who use services people who definitely don't use services i.e the healthcare professionals stuck up there on some kind of idealized ivory tower no thank you it's just yeah. not true. Mm, really, it certainly makes people ill, for sure, mm. and particularly staff. I think I've got some more questions if you're ready for them. Please. Okay. So Ali's talking about very much um, agreeing with a lot of things you're saying. Saying not just front work, frontline workers, but those shielding people who feel guilt about not being able to support their colleagues through this period. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people have had to stay home or had to choose to stay home because they've got colleagues or carers, caring responsibilities. And that's been a very different kind of distress, but very real mm -hmm. also. Um, and then people saying um, anxi anxiety can be felt when people aren't able to just suddenly adjust to this new normal. Just because we've called it normal doesn't mean that it is. Yeah. When I was talking about, yeah, hypervigilance is something that is noticeable. Uh, Alfonso's come in and said, um, how can how can somebody uh, recognise that they may have internalised um, moral injury and what could they do to support themselves? And another colleague has said, um, how might you notice that a colleague is experiencing moral injury? Um, for example, should we be aware if people are taking more time off work, maybe drinking more or seemingly losing confidence? Mm. So there's some questions around about how do you identify in yourself and others? Um, and this idea about how do you how do you get back to normal if if normal is a thing we're ever going to get or ever had? Mm -hmm. What comes to mind for me when when we're talking about this is a lot about uh, narratives that mm -hmm. you were saying, Kaj. I know about this sometimes this uh, hero narrative that has been created through coronavirus, but also I think the narratives that are there, um, you know, they were there before coronavirus hit us in terms of actually what do we represent as healthcare professionals, you know, and whether you work in physical healthcare or mm -hmm. uh, on mental health, you know, what, what is it that we're actually expected to represent and what is the reality of us being human? And sometimes mm -hmm. the two don't match because, you know, I know for me as a clinical psychologist, sometimes you're seen as this always holding, stable, you know, uh, contained, processed person, which of course... You mean you're not, not 24 hours a day, Anna? Good God. <laughs> <laughs> which of course is not, you know, it's not real because we are, we are also human and we're going through uh, life as everyone else and we're experiencing emotions like everyone else. So yeah. uh, because we know psychological theories, it doesn't mean that we, you know, we're not sort of going to be hit by, by what life throws at us. And I think those narratives can be really, really unhelpful because they can create that internalized sense of shame and stigma that is actually coming from often from the organization perpetuating those narratives. But we feel it for ourselves. So going back to that question of what is it that we notice, you know, for I know for me, when some of the things happened in terms of my mental health, there was a lot of uh, shame and actually um, withdrawing from people because I didn't feel 
I felt like uh, I was the only one going through that and that I wasn't really supposed to and that I should, you know, I should disappear and not really uh, be part of the workforce anymore because that wasn't, you know, that was the message that was really being battered back to me that it wasn't normal as a clinical psychologist to go mm -hmm. through this stress. And I think that's what, you know, that's some of what we might be experiencing also with um, at the moment, you know, what happens if the hero breaks down? And mm. can you really speak about it? You know, if you're the hero, are you really allowed to break down? Are you really allowed to say, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not coping. I'm, I'm not managing this because it's, it's too much for any one person to deal with the emotional consequences of what we're going through. So we might see things like, you know, withdrawing from peers, maybe yes, going off work, but also intense feelings of guilt, you know, and how we, we might perceive ourselves um, in terms of who we are in our professional roles as well. So it can be a range of things and it's hard, I think, to a really helpful um, way of reframing and um, letting go of the shame that I was feeling inside. Um, but yeah, definitely something about narrative feels really, really powerful um, with all of these things that we're discussing today. Yeah, because I mean, narrative links to what we're saying, doesn't it, around humanizing us all and accepting that we're all actually humans and we all have, um, you know, our own life stories. And, um, and certainly, you know, what Kaj was saying about heroes as well, it kind of feels as though COVID um, might force us more into the direction of not being able to talk about things because of this hero narrative, which has been really unhelpful. Um, I mean, the other thing for me that I'm thinking about is burnout as well. Mm. Um, you know, I'm sure we've all, you know, we've all seen that in, in colleagues and certainly, you know, um, you know, times in my own career as well, where, mm. you know, you can start to recognize that, you, you know, you need to move on from an environment that, um, you know, starts to feel unhealthy. Um, but I'm thinking, Kaj, do you want to come in at this point to say anything? Yeah, I, I think it's, I would, just thinking about the, the question around how would you identify it in yourself and in other people and just also interested in that question around transition well what what's the new normal and how how anxiety provoking that can be and I guess you know in terms of signs I was thinking you know you know Anna's talked about her own experiences which is really helpful um and thank you for being so candid um I I think also things like any kind of disruptions in your usual biological rhythms, you know, mm. changes in like your sleep pattern or your kind of ability, overeating, undereating, drinking more than you would normally, uh, relying on kind of caffeine to kind of get you through the day. Um, tiredness, I think, is a, a big thing. And of course, we've gone through that adrenaline fueled kind of early part of COVID and actually it went on for quite a long time and I I certainly hear a lot of people talking about how tired they are and I think this is kind of coming into quite a pivotal moment in terms of self-care self that kind of natural need to kind of take take a bit of downtime decompress take yeah take your annual leave take some breaks yeah. um yeah. take a break from work and I think that's been very hard for people when a lot, a lot of people have been working at home they're, they're kind of plugged in all day you know yeah. and and available all the time I think it's it's really hard to unwind from that um, and things like you know maybe people being more fragile with each other like you know irritable or angry or seeming to withdraw they might all be signs that people aren't aren't kind of doing as as well as um you know that they need a rest finding it hard to concentrate finding it hard to get through work and that with a kind of normal pace that you might do and i think a lot of stuff is it takes longer and it's more tiring you know the times i'm in the office now it's like thinking all the time about hand washing and what have i touched and hand sanitizing and wearing a mask and and all of that is just much more tiring because it's not part of usual work routine and I think things like cynicism I mean some of this is kind of overlaps I think with burnout I mean people talk yeah. about burnout being quite an individual response but I I think there is a point where it interconnects with 
moral injury. And I also think burnout is, is a systemic issue. You know, there was a health and safety report in 2019 that said something like 600,000 people had reported experiencing stress, the majority of those in public service. And we know that there have been before the pandemic, a lot of people had left nursing um, and a lot of the health professions were struggling with recruitment. And I think when you're getting people going in those kinds of numbers, that's systemic. That's yeah. not to do with, with individual people. So um, those are the kinds of things I'd be looking for. And also in terms of... Um, the, what's the new normal I think periods I'm noticing I kind of reflect on what am I feeling and am I the only person feeling this but I think periods of transition seem to be really anxiety provoking because the rules change and it's not always clear how they're changing um, and in the last few weeks we've obviously seen people having quite different reactions to to coming out and observing or not observing social distancing and I think that's very troubling for people and particularly for people who are still shielding so real mixed bag yeah there's so much there and, and again I was saying at the beginning about the chat that we did with the police last night and one of the really strong themes that came out from that was around fatigue and I think, you know, that's the same for, you know, all um, public sector workers probably mm. at the moment. And again, that sense that fatigue isn't an individual problem, but it's it's um, a problem created by the system partly. So, you know, even COVID to one side, you know, the intensity of long shifts and having to, um, you know, get through them on things like caffeine um, and then adding COVID into the mix as well. <coughs> Um, you know, it's, a, it's a massive issue isn't it and I think it's only something that we've really just started talking about recently I mean I'm yeah. not aware until recently of having many conversations about about fatigue even though we all know um you know that it's a, it's an issue in terms of you know our workloads and work patterns and things yeah so, I think I, stuff I, is very entrenched as well isn't it I mean there's a comment um yeah. from a from a colleague who prefer to stay nameless, which I completely understand, talking about um, how when they set up wobble rooms, do you okay. are you familiar with that idea? A place where people can go and, and, and be upset, which is a strange idea. And, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of people were tempted in by the cake and then stayed for the trauma. But there is something to be said, I think, for this idea that, um, that then people who were using the wobble rooms started being called wobblers. And you just think, oh, no, really? we're going around in a big circle. Yeah. As soon as someone admits it's very stuck, everybody yeah. jumps on it because it's so frightening to think that it can be something that happens to all of us. And there's something yeah. as well, I think, about some of our organisations, which is they'll put a poster up on the wall that says it's okay to be upset or whatever it is that they say. But every single system tells you that it's not. So yeah. do you see what I mean? And I think that causes more trauma and more confusion for people mm -hmm. because it's almost okay. like then when you do open up, you have things which are not punitive. Yeah, I'll say that. Okay. What are you opening up to? That's that's yeah. the thing. And people don't, because you were talking earlier, Kaj, about trust. Um, so it's so important. So I don't think it's there. Um, and I quite rightly don't think it's there because there's no, none of us are, are snagging the internal agencies of the trusts that we're working in yet. We are not looking at the quality of the inside a patient, you know, call it many, many things, of those of us who have broken down in service about what it's like to go through occupational health, HR, what management's like, what supervision is like, which can be awful. Um, so, you know, it's, it's it, 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 we have not grasped actually the extent to which we need to interrogate the in, internal workings of our service around this to make things better but, or call it auditing then call it auditing but I, I guess I was I was also thinking about these signs to look for and we're talking about values and it really makes sense this happened after I broke down which is why I started questioning the system and even formed integrated mental health which is you come down uh it, sorry it doesn't take a breakdown to do that but it did, did for me um it takes you back down to base. It takes you, it strips you back to the raw bones of what it is that you value in your life. And that's one thing that COVID has helped with. You know, mm -hmm. if you can talk, talk about COVID helping, um, you know, it, it strips you down to what it is you stand for, 
what it is that you believe and what is at the core of importance to you in terms of the kind of ways you want to work, who you want to work with and the kind of work that you want to do. And I would say if you are finding that there is a difference, if you spend some time thinking about that and you're finding there's a mismatch of values between between those things, what you want to do and, and actually the situation you're in. Then, then you want to you want to test that situation out. You either want to question it, you want to speak to your peers in that situation. You want to understand why the difference. Maybe it's always been a bit different, and it's time to change. Funnily enough, <laughs> talking about stigma, uh, it's time to change. Or, or maybe COVID has brought on a difference, which might settle over time. But it it really is about for me something coming back to that very core, central place of yourself. People can know themselves really well and question what's going on on the outside, you know, speak to the peers about it. Yeah, and there's a really significant role for coaching, isn't there, within what you've said, because certainly I know, you know, in my own life when, you know, I've been in a similar situation to what you've just described, you know, coaching has been, you know, hugely helpful in getting me in touch with my values and, as you say, what's important to you. Um, so maybe there is something there around, you know, coaching skills, which is is still a relatively new phenomenon, isn't it? In the sense that people have to go to a coach, whereas be nice. It would be nice to see our own workforce being kind of more skilled around coaching approaches, which again links to the the comments around, um, you know, seeing us as humans rather than clinicians, and you know, looking at our wider experiences and what's important. And mentoring yeah. is great as well. There are places where mentoring is on offer, but you you need to, you know, you would hope to have a, a mentor who's who 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 loves the NHS if that's you know the system you're working with, you know, who understands it, but is not in love with it because there are questions that need to be asked. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, Nikki, um, have we answered everything? So I know there was quite a lot. No, there is one, but it's not on COVID. So I'll ask you anyway, and um, if we, we we don't have anything to offer on it, we'll just say it so. Um, I wonder if anyone on the panel has any experience of working with or have comments on how moral injury can affect the LGBTQ plus community leading to internalised um, homophobia. So this idea about trauma being something that really impacts someone's identity. Mm. I can leave I that with you. I can't speak exactly to the LGBT mm. things in relation to moral injury, but where that's bringing A health professional in a way of it tapping into your identity as mm. as both a human being and a, and a clinical psychologist which sometimes you know it, it can be quite a strong identity for for us going into whatever profession we're in um and i think where and natalie have had conversations around you know how do we conceptualize moral injury in terms of lived experience mm. and one of the things that we were really reflecting on is that what tends to happen when um, we break down from the inside as mental health professionals is that you're suddenly, you know, there might be that initial period of, um, of shame and then you're suddenly hit with this real, we call it a split, you know, there's a split between what your values are as a person who has gone into that profession. And, you know, for many of us in the mental health professions, it's, it's to help people, you know, to treat people as humans, to be compassionate, to make a difference. And then the difference of how the system is treating you in that moment and how, you know, you're, you're not seen as human, you're seeing as less than, you're often pushed out, many people leave. And, you know, the, the, the environment around you becomes a very, very traumatizing environment where your values don't match the system's mm -hmm. values. And what you're doing is then you're transgressing that idea of the norm that the system is creating, that you should be whatever, you know? Yeah. And that really taps into your sense of identity. It did for me, you know, there are questions around, can I, um, can I still be a clinical psychologist? Can I do this? You know, is it, is it normal for me to feel this way? And am I allowed even? So I think it can, it can cause a moral injury in the sense of that mismatch and split between your own values of going into a profession and the values of the system that often just don't meet you where you are. Um, mm. So that can create a lot of trauma and, and shame and stigma, and it can be really, really dangerous for some people, certainly. I think people who um, identify with interse intersectionality or intersectional issues 
uh, you know, for example, having mental health difficulties or, you know, any of these kind of protected characteristics around race, age, probably have a very great insight into places where there have been times when they have felt that they are not wanted or comfortable at all within the systems that they work. And actually, it's, it's these very people who have the gold, you know, who can help uh, make things better, who can help improve, if only it was okay to say so, you know, but it's only okay to speak. Sometimes it's not. It's very hard. Mm -hmm. There's another last question saying, um, do, do the panel think that clapping for health workers has meant health professionals see society supports them, but it's made them more scared to actually admit that they, they're struggling sometimes? So again, that almost like as soon as you start clapping and getting free pizzas, you've almost to say then I'm scared, I'm not happy. Yeah, you almost can't say it. It's mm. an interesting one, um, and this idea about self-regulating internal emotions. I think we're all for self-regulating, but there's a point where you can't self-regulate. You just need to stop okay. being harmed. <laughs> so I think <laughs> Nikki quote of the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So much regulate this. Yeah. We're gonna have yeah. to wrap up actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're coming to the end. So I guess um we've had such a great conversation and I feel like we yeah. could go on for another hour or longer discussing this. Well, I know we could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has um, been known. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we maybe need to come back to this one, Nikki, as well at some point, I'm thinking. Yeah. So um, and I guess just in the last few minutes then, um, any last minute com comments, throwing it open to everyone, final thoughts, reflections, and then we'll wrap up for this evening. Thank you for the conversation. I could go on for another hour. I just want to sit and talk <laughs> with you all. Um, for me, there's something about kind of... Um, the system, I mean, the, the, the kind of systems that we're working in has come out as a really major theme in mm. the discussion. And I think that idea of being authentic within those systems and the values of the system and the personal values of people working with it lining up. And sometimes there's, there's a gap. And sometimes those systems, whichever we're working in, have been created in a particular way. That it's exclusive. And if you don't fit that kind of the residues of what is whatever is in there, privilege or, you know, that actually you're at a disadvantage. And, you know, as a, a trade unionist, we, we're kind of very interested in supporting and expanding that space so that anybody with protected characteristics in particular is able to fit and feel safe and be included and an integral part of that system and I think that's one of the things that makes organizations feel safe. Important. Anybody else before we wrap up for tonight? I mean I think for me again very very interesting discussions. And one of the things that is sort of coming to mind in terms of summing up again it's it's in relation to you know how do we question systems when things go wrong, you know, and how do we move away from this um pathologizing or you know locating something in the individual to then really address what is it that has led that particular person to feel that way in that system you know how do we do that and how can the system be open to that you know to that questioning and to actually acknowledging and taking responsibility whether we're talking about coronavirus whether we're talking about resources or you know whatever the context might be but how can the system also take responsibility and ownership of its wrongdoings and mistakes in all of this so that people yeah. can feel safe within it and can thrive? Mm. I think that's a really interesting point. Dave, as, who's lurking, who, we need to say thank you, obviously, to Dave, who does all the tech stuff for us here. Um, <laughs> he's so. actually joining in as well with questions now. That's how engaging a panel you are. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, when mine did work on supporting emergency services, um, the ambulance seemed to have the worst level of support for staff. Um, mm. is it, isn't it surprising that health services are the least best at this and what we should really be doing to, to change that? And also, um, healthcare regulators are taking in um, the context of COVID into account when they're getting fitness to practice complaints. And he's just saying he really hopes that employers show the same compassion yeah. to staff Definitely. if things go wrong. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And if Thank not, you, raise Dave. it up. Raise it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. However, I guess me, 
I would say, um, if you're a leader, and I don't mean necessarily a boss, I mean somebody who influences, don't yeah. be afraid to say if you're struggling, because that's so important. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there are healthcare assistants who basically role model for the entire ward. <laughs> and and if, if you happen to be somebody who's a, who's a coper, and that's what you take pride in, and that's what people reward you for, and sometimes you don't, say so. Because everybody who's new, particularly our new students, copy that behaviour. And if it's not real, if it's if it's just the thing you put on to protect you and to make it look like everything is okay, then they'll learn those behaviours and they won't understand when they feel afraid or ashamed or scared or even are actually in danger of hurting themselves or other people just because of the stress that they're under. So I would say just be truthful about how you feel, you know, and, and don't be angry or afraid if your colleagues who you lean on say you need to give me a break for a bit because that's what you do for your friends and family who you care about, mm. you should do it for your, for your colleagues who you care about too. That's what I can say. Thank you. I think that's a really good note to end on. And just to say, it's not the end of the conversation. If you um, want to tweet us or send us any more comments, we will look through the social media feed and we will um, get back to people. There are more. yeah unfortunate that we've run out of time tonight because we've had so much to discuss but it's been a great conversation and you know thank you to um to everybody who's joined us tonight and um and we'll be back next week with um ian hamilton next week talking about substance use so that's it for tonight and thank you for listening thank you very much thank Thank you you very much for listening Bye. Bye. bye